0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I want to invite you to once again turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, as you're being seated. It's been a few weeks now since we were in the book of Revelation due to my trip to Uganda. Uh, Adam and Tyson were able to fill in, and then last week we were able to share with you the results of our trip uh, to see Chris and Melissa, encourage you to continue to pray uh, for the work that they're doing uh, there. But back in Revelation chapter 2 today, and uh, just as a reminder before we read the text uh, for this morning, uh, several weeks ago now we were uh, introduced to the church at Ephesus uh, and some of the things taking place within the church culture there, things that Jesus uh, intimately knew because of his um, omniscience and things that he felt he needed to address. Uh, and rebuke them for to to make sure that they endured as a church. Uh, we saw that from a summary stand, summary sentence standpoint, uh, that a meaningful presence for a church in the community uh, will only persist. It will only continue if there's doctrinal purity and persistence in our love for God and each other. That without the two working together, doctrinal purity and a uh, a motivation of love. For that doctrinal purity, that the church will cease to exist. Um, that ultimately, uh, people will get tired of of following Jesus if it's uh, out of obligation or out of duty. If there's not a passion and a relationship tied to our following Christ, then at some point, that church will cease to exist. Um, we saw that Jesus emphasizes His authority over the church at Ephesus as He walks among the seven golden lampstands and potentially threatens to take their uh, church out of existence uh, towards the end of that section. Uh, We saw the strength of the church, the doctrinal zeal and purity, and we said that it's easy for our church to relate to this because we're a church that desires doctrinal purity that works very hard and tirelessly to to make sure that that's preserved within our church. We're going to address false doctrines as they pop up in our church culture. We're going to raise up godly men to be elders within this church that can help preserve that. So I believe it's certainly a strength of our church in the same way that it was for Ephesus, and they're commended for it. Uh, but then the failure of the church being that they had abandoned their love, that in being diligent and dutiful that they were very busy and and had really worked themselves to exhaustion and so it certainly wasn't that they had become lazy or complacent or lukewarm instead they had lost the proper motivation for the things that they do they had stopped serving each other out of love the things that they were doing were still being done but the long-term possibilities of those continuing to be done were in jeopardy due to the fact that there was no love attached what they were doing. Uh, And so Jesus rebukes them for it. Jesus calls them to remember uh, what it was like previously when they were in the right, and to repent uh, and to turn towards those previous actions. And if they did so, they would be feasting on the tree of life one day as opposed to having their lampstand removed. And we talked about the fact that that church is not in existence today. And so um, while there may have been some uh, immediate response, eventually Uh, that church ceased to exist. And so the application for us as a church um, was to really examine ourselves and the things that we do within this church and to examine our motivation. Uh, I even asked the question, do people in our church feel loved because of your specific actions within this church? Um, Are people connected within this church specifically because of you? Or is it simply because other people are seeking to keep those people connected? What are you actively doing to love and to serve people within this church so that they feel connected, they feel loved on, that they feel cared for? That brings us to the second church in this series that John was called to write to, uh, the church in Smyrna. Uh, And we'll start reading in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2. It says, "...and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life." I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt. By the second death. Our summary sentence for today the church should find comfort by looking to the second life when faced with trials and persecution. The church should find comfort by looking to the second life when faced with trials and persecution. For our kids, when bad things happen, we should think about heaven and Jesus and how good things will eventually be one day. One of the rare occasions when our kid's summary sentence is longer than our adult summary sentence. <laughs> um, the church should find comfort by looking to the second life when faced with trials and persecution. This is a uh, short blurb to this church at Smyrna. It's not near as long as some of the other uh, letters to these churches. Um, it, it's packed full of encouragement in the midst of persecution. That's the running theme through this. Section here. Verses 8 through 11, it's all about the church enduring persecution and how it can do so and why it should. Um, There's to be a lack of fear within persecution that ultimately the promises of the second death not affecting the Christian uh, should ultimately cause us to persevere through our trials and persecution. So the church, as it weathers the storms of trials and persecution, should keep its focus on the second life. The second life being that time where we endure to the end and then we enter into eternity with Jesus Christ. That if we keep our eyes focused on that perspective, then it gives us the, the courage, it gives us the, um, the motivation to endure trials and persecution. That was the message to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna is the only city of the seven to remain in existence today. So the other cities that these churches uh, were a part of um, have been destroyed. They don't They don't exist today. Uh, Smyrna is the only uh, city uh, that's located in this original location uh, that is still in existence today. There's no rebuke and no call to repentance in this letter. This is one of the few that uh, Jesus doesn't have something to rebuke them for. There's no call to to new action. There's no call to repentance. Instead, they're called to keep doing what they're doing and to prepare for even worse circumstances and then what they currently have. Um, This city in uh, Asia had the largest Jewish population of any Asian city, Um, and that's going to be significant and important as we see those that are partly responsible for the persecution, that there's a great many Jews located in this city of Smyrna at that time. Uh, And then Polycarp, some of you may be familiar with, early church father, uh, was the bishop of this church uh, potentially when this letter was written. Um, He very well could have been serving within that church at that time. If not at that time, shortly thereafter, Polycarp becomes the pastor of this church, and he's eventually martyred for his faith. And we'll talk about Polycarp a little bit more uh, as we get into our sermon. But just some quick facts about Smyrna and um, its presence within that community. So as we jump into the text today, uh, point number one is that when things seem out of control, our king remains in control. The title of today's sermon is that things aren't what they seem. Things aren't what they seem, which is kind of a theme of apocalyptic language anyways. As we work through the book of Revelation, we're going to see things pictured in grotesque forms that aren't really what they would be perceived to be in real life, that they're shown in an exaggerated form to really highlight what they truly are. Um, that's where we see Jesus sometimes pictured as a slain lamb, uh, that uh, he's, he's pictured as what he truly is, even though visibly he may not look exactly that way. The same in the way we described God in Revelation chapter 1, uh, we describe Jesus with uh, some of the, the picturesque things that John gives, they really demonstrate and depict what he truly is. And so right off the bat, we see when things seem out of control, our king remains in control. Certainly in the context of the church at Smyrna, things probably seemed like they were spiraling out of control. As persecution was mounting, as poverty was increasing, uh, I'm sure the church felt very confused and uh, really wondering where is King Jesus in all of this. And Jesus very quickly, right off the bat as he addresses Smyrna, reminds them of his presence. It says unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. As the first and the last, he controls time and remains with his church. That's important for the Smyrnans to, to grasp and understand. That Jesus is the first and the last, meaning that Jesus was with them prior to the persecution beginning, and Jesus will be with them after the persecution ceases, Uh, that Jesus is the first and the last. He controls time. Uh, he's, He's been there since the beginning. He will be there till the end. Jesus is over time. It's an encouragement to this church that he will be with them through the midst of this persecution as the first and the last. You'll remember we said each one of these letters, as Jesus introduces himself to that specific church, he draws upon things about himself in chapter one, things that are relevant to that church to know. And so he draws upon this idea, first and the last, because they're going through a difficult time. through the All right, so as the first and the last, he controls time and remains with his church. But number two, as the one, and came to life he holds the keys to life and death not only is he the first and the last which we've highlighted before is a unique title for what we would understand to be God the Father in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah God the Father who was really the the main uh, understanding of the Jewish people about God like the the Trinity was being revealed and developed and um, their knowledge of how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit worked was probably more elementary than than what we have today. And so their understanding of God, Yahweh, was that he's the first and the last. And so for Jesus to have those titles attributed to him, it certainly shows his deity. And then once again, he's describing himself as the one who died and came to life. As the one who died and came to life, he now holds the keys to life and death. He has overcome The greatest fear of tribulation. Think about it. When you think about tribulation, for those that uh, ventured through tribulation trails or judgment journeys... The big fear that's kind of held over the crowd as you walk through and see the book of Revelation playing out is the idea of death, right? You see death all around you as you walk through this, this drama depiction of the book of Revelation. You've got people dying in poverty. You've got people dying because of persecution from the government. People that are standing up their faith and denying uh, that the Antichrist are being killed for that, right? Death is, is shown to be the greatest fear, And that's certainly what the people at Smyrna would have felt. As persecution is mounting for them, death looms, and death looms large. And for Jesus to immediately remind them, hey, I died and I rose again, is is a confidence builder. right? We know from the disciples, they were very fearful of being identified with Jesus during his trial and during his crucifixion. right? Peter and them don't want to potentially be identified with Jesus because they don't want to endure the same things that Jesus is enduring. But then immediately after the resurrection, when they see the resurrected Christ, their confidence is, uh, is infused, right? Like they, they, don't, they don't see death now as something to fear. Peter and these guys start to boldly proclaim Jesus, whereas previously they were cowering in the shadows. They're now boldly proclaiming Jesus because death, the sting of death, the fear of death has been removed. And so Jesus right off the bat wants the Smyrna the people of Smyrna to know he is the one who has died and who has come back. To life he has overcome their greatest fears and so the implication is that jesus serves as an example here he serves as an example we will be lifted up if we are faithful to death thinking back to that passage in philippians 2 where jesus is shown to be that example he comes and he serves he he makes himself a servant uh tyson taught through this passage uh while i was gone right and so um Jesus is that great example. We're called to serve others and to love others the way that Jesus did through that example, right? And then at the end of that section, it talks about Jesus dying and then being exalted and lifted up and given a name that's above every name so that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? Jesus is an example that if you remain faithful to death, if you remain faithful to death, that you will then be exalted in the second life. And Jesus, that pattern is true of Jesus and that pattern is now true of us. That if we'll remain faithful to death, that we too in in death will be exalted and lifted up and given eternal life. So when things seem out of control, our king remains in control. And Jesus wants to draw upon that right off the bat before he gets into discussion about their tribulation, their poverty, and whether that will either continue or cease. So before he even identifies and talks about their, their, uh, their persecution, he says, I want you to know that I'm in control of everything, that I've died and I now live again. And so whatever we face together, we can come out on the other side victorious. It says in verse nine, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Number two, when things seem to be going wrong, we are most likely in the right. We are most likely in the right. When things seem to be going wrong, we are most likely in the right. For our kids, when we do the right thing, the world will probably hate us. When things seem to be going wrong, we are most likely in the right. Think about it. The the church has, has been faithful they're not, they're not rebuked for any of their works, right? They're, they don't need to love better. They don't need to come out of lukewarmness and be more hot and, and more passionate for the gospel. None of that's addressed. None of that seems to be an issue for this church, right? Like, they're not rebuked for anything. And yet they potentially have some of the worst circumstances that are talked about with these churches. I mean, they're facing persecution, and there's not really a whole lot of hope extended that it's gonna end anytime soon, and in fact, it's actually told to them that it may get worse. And so if, if you're a faithful believer and you're trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? Um, what, 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 what's happening here? How do, I, how do I process this? You're thinking, man, I should, be, I should maybe be rewarded for the fact that I've been faithful, right? Like we're doing all the right things. Why, why are we being punished for it? Why are we not s- sowing and reaping uh, good things here? Um, the question probably was definitely in their minds. Things seem to be going wrong. What are we doing wrong? What do we need to fix? Because we're really, bearing, we're really being bared down upon by the outside uh, people here. Um, and what Jesus encourages them here is that when things seem to be going wrong, they're exactly where they're supposed to be. Jesus says, I, I know what's going on. We get this picture of intimacy here from Jesus. I know your persecution. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. But you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and how they're seeking to harm you. He's aware of their persecution and their plight. He's aware of their situation. He knows exactly what they're going through. He's completely in the know about their tribulation. He knows that those who should have been their greatest allies have become their greatest enemies. Here's what's the real sad part of this, right? Coming out of the book of Genesis, we've talked about Abraham and his descendants and how they're supposed to be a blessing to all nations, right? Like God makes his covenant with Abraham and says, you're the promised seed, like the Messiah is gonna come from you and, and, and the world's gonna be blessed through you. And so you've got these Jewish people Right, Jewish people that are scattered all over the place. Jesus shows up. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus dies on the cross. The first people that are spreading the gospel are Jewish people, these disciples that have come to faith. Then you get Paul on board with it. And you would expect that the synagogues would be safe havens for these Gentiles and these people that are coming to Christ to come and to learn more of this God, right? The New Testament hasn't been written to its entirety. It hasn't been circulated, and so the Old Testament would have been intact, and that's where they would have read it, at the synagogue. And so you're thinking, okay, I, I've become a Christian now. Uh, I, I'm going to go to the synagogue, and I'm going to be able to, to find fellowship and community. And what do they find instead? They find a group of people who slander them and want them punished and want them killed for following Jesus. Should have been their greatest allies and said they're their greatest enemies. The Jews wanted the Christians to be completely separated from judaism they want them removed from what what you could call a protective umbrella here's what i mean by that within the roman empire you had to confess caesar as lord right like that was an obligation to to be in the roman empire you had to confess uh, kind of an emperor type worship the jewish people were exempt from that Okay, they, were, they were kind of grandfathered into the empire, and basically, as long as they didn't cause trouble, as long as they paid their taxes, as long as they did some of the things that they needed to do, the Romans allowed them to function within their religion. Okay? Um, that's why they were still allowed to have a King Herod when Jesus was born. They were still allowed to function kind of pseudo-Jewish-like within the Roman Empire. All of a sudden, Christianity shows up on the scene, and, it, and initially it's kind of viewed as the same thing, right? Like they believe a little bit different than the Jewish people, but from an outsider looking in, they all kind of do the same thing. They're all kind of the, the same group. The Jews stand up and say, no, we're not the same. We're not the same, right? Paul wants them killed. Paul wants to stop the Jewish people or the, the faith from continuing. Um, then he obviously gets grafted into the plan, but the Jewish people as a whole want Christianity to stop. Pharisees want it to stop. Tried to kill Jesus, tried to, tried to um, stop the rumors of his resurrection, couldn't. So now their goal is to really distinguish themselves from Christianity. Hey, we're two separate things. Because if they can get them out from underneath the umbrella of Judaism, well now all of a sudden you have to confess Caesar as Lord. You're not grandfathered in you're a new religion that sprung up and we don't let new religions spring up in the Roman Empire, you'll have to confess Caesar is Lord. That's really where the persecution starts to happen not long after Jesus leaves. Because at first the lines were blurred. Are Are you Jewish or are you not? Are you part of the Jewish sect, the Judaism religion? No, they're not, they're not, they're not part of us. All of a sudden they're pushed out from that umbrella and the Roman Empire says, okay, then we're gonna kill you. If you don't confess Caesar is Lord, then we're going to kill you. And so this this is a huge factor in why this church is being persecuted. It's the Jewish people that are causing it. It's the Jewish people that are causing this persecution. Jewish people that are supposed to be a blessing are now becoming a curse to these people. They're no longer exempt from the obligations to worship Caesar, and they're now subjected to death. In fact, Jesus says they function as Satan. They're performing his desires. You'll remember in John chapter 8, when Jesus was talking with the Pharisees, he kind of rebukes them publicly and calls them out. They believe that they're part of God's people. They believe they're part of the chosen group. And in verse 39 of chapter 8, it says, They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were uh, not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's This is the same Jesus talking here in John chapter 8 as the one talking in Revelation chapter 2. He says, the people that should be your greatest allies have become your greatest enemies. And newsflash, they are not part of my family. They are part of the synagogue of Satan. This picture of them gathering, and they're not gathering to worship the one true God. They're gathering to do the works of Satan. They're gathering to persecute the church. And so what we see here is that anyone who opposes God's church is really a part of Satan's crew. Going back to Genesis chapter three, when when God is is disciplining and and dividing there after the the fruit has been eaten, what does he tell Satan? He says, I'm not gonna leave things this way, right? I'm gonna rescue humanity back to me and I'm gonna drive a stake between your offspring and, and the true offspring and there's gonna be enmity between the two of you. And we see this playing out here. We see the the seed of Satan taking root here and and persecuting the church. And Jesus says, I'm fully aware of it. I'm fully aware of your persecution. Number two, he extends encouragement about the advantage they possess. He extends encouragement about the advantage that they possess. So you look at this and you say, wow, odds are stacked against Smyrna. Smyrna. Right? They're, they're, they're being persecuted. They're poor. Uh, they've got future persecutions to come. And yet Jesus looks at it and says, You guys are rich, right? You guys are rich. While they appear to be poor, they possess great riches. They possess great riches. Think about what they actually possess. Right? Their, their poverty is probably due to the persecution that the Jews have brought on upon them. They're losing their jobs, they're possibly being kicked out of their houses because they won't confess Caesar is Lord. Jesus says, without all the material possessions, you are still very rich. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. It says, He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. This idea that our our true uh, understanding of riches and and prosperity is tied not to things on this earth, but things that are yet to come. In James chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. They're rich, according to Jesus. They're rich because even though they may not have a job, even though they may not have a house, even though they don't have the guarantee that they'll live tomorrow... Those are the things that we value in our culture, right? Like someone who is considered rich in our culture has a great house, has a great job, has family, and has assurance that their life is going to continue. As soon as somebody gets some type of terminal notification that their life is on, is on notice, that they don't have much longer to live, all of a sudden they're not really viewed as having advantage, right? Like, like, you're gonna die soon. So even if you have a lot of riches, the greatest thing that you need is life to enjoy those riches. And, and if you've got some type of terminal disease, the riches don't matter anymore. So they, they've lost everything that's valuable in our culture. They've lost house, they've lost job, they've lost physical possessions. They also have lost the possibility of living much longer. And yet Jesus still looks at them and says, you're rich. Why? I mean, one of the first things that stands out to me is that they are rich because they serve a good God who has good intentions for them, right? Like that's the most valuable thing that they can possess. They serve a good God Who is going to work everything in their life for good? I mean, they have every advantage possible when you understand that. They have every spiritual blessing, according to Ephesians chapter 1. It's the exact opposite of the condition that we find in the church at Laodicea. In Laodicea, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, they're a church who appears to be very rich. It says in verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, right? Things aren't what they seem there either. They they look to be a very thriving church, a very prosperous church. And yet Jesus says, you're poor, you're without. Not true of the church in Smyrna. They possess the spiritual blessings that matter. And I think it's their endurance that really shows that Jesus isn't having to tell them that they're rich for the first time. They understand they're rich. They understand they're rich. The fact that they endure and they don't confess Caesar as Lord shows that they have a proper perspective on what's valuable. If they didn't, they would be abandoning the faith. They would be walking away. They would be possessing Caesar as Lord and and gaining the jobs back and gaining the security back and gaining the possessions back. But they're not. And Jesus isn't having to tell them to start enduring. He says, you're already enduring. You, You know you're rich. They believe that what they possess is better than what they are losing. They're going to be a good picture of what comes in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Here we're told of those that are being martyred for their faith. It says, They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. These people understand what's truly valuable. The kingdom of God, as Jesus tells them, is where they find their true prosperity. Jesus says, I know your plight, I know your persecution, I know your tribulation. I know that you're rich, even though you appear to be poor to those around you. Number three, though, Satan is aware of the threat that Smyrna poses to his kingdom. Not only is Jesus quite aware of this church and quite aware of uh, their understanding of what's rich and their desire to endure, Satan is very aware of this church as well. They've garnered his attention Their faithful works have gotten his attention. Through the Jews, he will now persecute them. Jesus says, I know everything that you're going through. I know, I know what you've had to endure. Don't fear what's about to what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Right? There's, there's two ways to view this. One, you can get very fearful you can be very fearful over the fact that, wow, the devil is about to start interacting with our church. The devil is about to attack our church. The devil wants to stop our church. There's a fearful approach to that where you're kind of scared about it, but there's also a way you can read this and feel very encouraged. Wow, our church is doing something, right? Like our church is being faithful to the point that it's garnered the attention of the enemy, The enemy feels that we're a threat to his seed, to his kingdom. We are being used by God to rescue people out of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and we've garnered attention from the enemy. So you can be fearful about it, but you can also be very encouraged by the fact that, hey, our church is significant enough. It may not be big in that culture. It may not be prosperous, to others that are looking in, but it's certainly rich where it counts and their works are certainly penetrating where they need to because the devil is very concerned about what this church is up to and he therefore comes and attacks those that are there. Satan is aware of the threat. Number four, Jesus is aware of the coming persecution, but he plans to use it rather than prevent it. I wrote something about Facebook on this this week because it was just, it was just really uh, encouraging for me to think about the fact that Jesus knows about this persecution that's coming well in advance, right? He, he writes in such a way to warn this church, right? And however long it was going to take for this letter to be circulated to Smyrna, it was going to get there in time before these 10 days happen. He says, look, you're going you're gonna to be thrown into prison for 10 days. Persecution, more persecution is coming, We know that that God is sovereign. We know that Jesus possesses all power. He's the first and the last. He has the keys to, to life and death. Why not stop this, right? Like why not thwart the plans of the devil and stop him from throwing them into prison? This is a faithful church. This church is doing what it should do. This church is having an impact. People must be coming to faith in Christ for the devil to be concerned about it. Why not stop the plans of the devil? He's capable of doing it. He's powerful enough to do it. But I think Jesus shows his power to even a greater extent by not stopping it, by allowing it to happen, but using it for his purposes rather than Satan being able to fulfill his. Right? Like it shows great power in my mind to stop it. But I think it shows even greater power for Jesus to let it happen and for it not to do what Satan wants it to do, for it actually to to do the opposite. For, it, for him to come in, Satan wants to tempt these people to apostatize the faith. He says, if I can apply the pressure, if I can apply the pressure of prison and possible death, these people will stop following Jesus. Jesus says, okay, I'll let you apply the pressure. I'll let you apply the persecution because what's going to happen is their faith's going to actually be strengthened and the church is actually going to grow as a result of their death. Shows great power by Jesus, and, and, and knowing that it's coming, Jesus doesn't say, fear not, because I'm going to make it stop. He says, fear not, because you're going to be tested. Fear not, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He tells them not to fear. Psalm 46, 1 through 3, similar language that reminds us of reasons that we should not fear as well. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is our strength, our refuge, our help in trouble. We will not fear anything that could be thrown at us. Luke chapter 12, verse four and five, Jesus reminds us of the type of fear that we should have, The type of fear that is worth having, Luke chapter 12, verse 4, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you to whom to fear, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus says, don't fear anybody on this earth that can take your life. You need to fear me, fear God who has the ability to cast you into the second death. We learn more about the second death in Revelation chapter 20. It's the eternal punishment that the devil and those that have rejected Christ fall into. Jesus says, fear the right individual. Fear the one who has the power and the authority over the second death. They're not told to fear because it won't happen. They're told not to fear because of what will result on the other side, and that's their victory. He plans to use Satan's temptation to prove their faith. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, James 1, 2 are passages um, that remind us of this as well. Let me just read the one from James for us. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Number five, Jesus plans to intentionally limit the suffering. He intentionally plans to limit the suffering. Says the persecution will last ten days. Now, question probably pops up: Well, what does that mean? How long is that? When does that happen? What are they? What's happening in those ten days? Okay. Because I believe that the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. Because we're approaching it from the perspectives that we are, I don't know that this is necessarily a literal ten days here. Okay, it may be, but because I think the other passages in the book of Revelation that allude to Dates and years are symbolic, it makes sense that this too would fall into that category. Okay, so we know that there's years that are going to be talked about, especially the thousand years that comes up in Revelation chapter 20. I don't believe it's a literal thousand years, I believe it represents a long span of time. Okay, so what I think the 10 days, the real focal point of the 10 days is, is that it's a short amount of time. It's a short amount of time in comparison to the other time frames mentioned in the book of Revelation. Now, I could be wrong. A thousand years in Revelation could be a literal thousand years. This 10 days could be a literal 10 days. Even if they are, the, the, the truth that I'm saying is still true. This is a short amount of time compared to other things in the book of Revelation. I think that's the encouragement to this church, that this persecution will be a short, a short time frame for them, especially in light of eternity, because some of these people aren't coming out of this persecution. Right? Like it's not, hey, push forward, press through, and at the end of 10 days this stops and you get your jobs back and, and you get to start following Jesus without pressure and persecution. Because what does he say right after this? He says, be faithful even if you're martyred. Right, Like, hey, 10 days you're going to get thrown in prison and then on top of that, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life prison during that time was not a tool of punishment typically. It was a a place that you were held until you were tried, until you were killed. You didn't really go to prison for long periods of time during that time. It was a temporary holding place for us to decide if you get to go free or if you get killed. So for them, hey, you're going to be in jail for 10 days. They would have heard that and known some of us aren't coming out of jail. We're getting released a totally different way. We're getting released to the second life. This was, this was an alarming statement, but it's coming from the one who's the first and the last. It's coming from the one who has lived and died and lived again. He says, be faithful unto death. Some of you are gonna be persecuted for 10 days. You're gonna be thrown into jail for 10 days. I don't know that it's a literal 10 days. I think it's meant to communicate that it's a short amount of time, that if they can persevere for a short amount of time, they've got far more to look forward to in eternity talked about Polycarp a little bit earlier. Um, Polycarp was, was the bishop of this church at some point. He was burned at the stake in AD 155 because he refused to say, Caesar is Lord. It may be that some of what he endures is a fulfillment of what Jesus said was coming, right? The 10 days means that it's a very real persecution that's coming, but what's so encouraging is that it's a restricted amount of suffering. Jesus knows it's coming. He's not going to stop it, but he is going to restrict it to a short amount of time. Um, I want to show you a quick video. I think Tyson may have it. Sh- let will see if you can show yours first. On Polycarp, because some of you may not have any idea who this guy is, and I think it'll be uh, cool for our kids to see and for us to be reminded. It's not a great quality video, so it's going to be a little bit blurry, so listen more to the audio, but the picture's there for you to, to watch as well.
1: As the Roman Empire flourished here in Smyrna, it became a pretty rough place for Jews and Christians. Both Jews and Christians were monotheistic faiths, and the Romans instituted emperor worship. And anybody caught not bowing a knee to uh, an image or an idol of the Caesar was subject to pretty harsh treatment, even death. In fact, in 156 AD, one of Christianity's most famous early church fathers, Polycarp, was burned at the stake and martyred right here in Smyrna. Polycarp was a man born in 70 AD who came to believe in Christ at an early age. He had the opportunity later to study directly under the Apostle John, and others who had had direct association with Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. Pretty cool that he was only one degree separated from Jesus himself. Polycarp was eventually appointed by John as the bishop of the church in Smyrna, where he faithfully ministered for many years. It was under the rule of Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius that the persecution of Christians became more intense. In the year 156 AD, Polycarp was arrested by Roman soldiers and was taken before the local proconsul here in Smyrna and urged to utter the phrase, Caesar is Lord, and offer a small pinch of incense to the statue of the emperor. It was a simple formality that would have spared Polycarp from torture and death. His refusal to do so infuriated the bloodthirsty mob. Then, according to a Smyrnian letter recording the event, as Polycarp was being dragged to his place of execution, a voice was heard from heaven by all the believers that were present. The voice said this. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Then, standing in the arena, Polycarp was urged one last time to renounce Christ. His response, well attested in historical accounts, was this. Eighty-six years I have served Christ,
0: and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me?
1: Polycarp was soon led to the stake to be burned alive claiming that God would give him the strength to remain on the stake without moving, he asked to be tied instead of nailed to the stake. Then after Polycarp uttered his last prayer, the fire was lit. To the astonishment of the crowd, the flames merely swirled around him as if a wall of wind was protecting him and his body was unscathed. The executioner was then ordered to plunge a sword through the flames into Polycarp. After doing so, as the letter records, Polycarp's blood gushed forth and extinguished the fire. One of early Christianity's most important church fathers was dead. His life and death was a living testimony of faith that would endure for two thousand years. But the death of Polycarp backfired, for his conviction and witness went on to inspire and embolden thousands of saints after him. He is a tangible illustration of the fact that during the times of the greatest persecution, the Christian church grows the most.
0: I don't know how much of that legend is true. I mean, it's an awesome story, and I've read it before, some of the accounts of his death. And, I mean, what an unbelievable amount of faith... Uh, and resolve to even say, "Hey, I can stand put in the midst of being burned alive and and you don't have to secure me in the same way you would a criminal that i'm I'm willing to stand put and to to endure that because of my savior uh to even to even hear the the possible legend here that the the flames wouldn't engulf him that 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 Christ spared him that pain and allowed him to go very quickly uh, for those that are on looking and 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 watching that play out i mean it has the opposite effect, right. It's exactly what we're talking about here that the plan for Satan was to persecute and to kill and to squash the church. The Jews, that was their plan. Satan carrying out his plan through the Jewish people. Let's put an end to the church by killing it. And what we find is that the church actually thrives and grows in the midst of that great persecution. And so while Rome tried to get rid of the gospel and tried to get rid of the church, in fact, they encouraged its growth as people saw these people Uh, Go to the stake and not cry out, Caesar is Lord. It was a testimony to the true belief that Christ was back from the dead. Another uh, early church father, Tertullian, he's responsible for the, the famous quote that you've probably heard, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The actual quote, it's kind of been altered, the actual quote that he said, we multiply whenever we are mowed down by you, the blood of Christians is seed. The implication here, uh, and I think what what we can kind of really walk away from here, is that Satan does not initiate any plan that Jesus has not already anticipated and countered. I mean, you, you, you can read this passage and, and not read it from the sovereignty of God perspective and just see, wow, like Jesus is just letting his church get beat up. Like, what's he doing? But you read it from the sovereignty of God perspective and you say, okay, Jesus has all authority and the power to stop this, and he doesn't. Why does he not? Because he knows that the church is going to grow through this persecution. He knows that that they are going to be able to endure this in such a way that even if it costs them their life, it's going to lead others to possessing eternal life. And so Jesus allows it to go through. He allows it to go through, but it doesn't have the effect that Satan wants it to have. Jesus has anticipated it. Jesus has countered it. You know, to me, it reminds me of what we do as as football coaches. I I pride myself on being prepared for a football game. I watch tons of film. I make sure that I know what my opponent is up to and what my opponent wants to accomplish. Um, My goal is to be able to tell my guys what the next play is that they're about to run based on how they line up, based how they form, how they uh, line up in a formation, I can usually call out to my guys, here's what's about to come. Anticipate it and be ready for it, right? And then I try to counter anything that they're going to do. In fact, I usually go into games with at least a handful of plays that they've never seen on film so that they can't anticipate what we're doing. Jesus is the ultimate anticipator here. He's saying, my opponent, my opponent, I know exactly what my opponent is up to. I know exactly what my opponent wants to accomplish. I've already planned for it. I've already countered it, and I'm actually gonna use it to my advantage. That's what we see here is that Jesus is the sovereign king. Jesus is in control. He anticipates everything that Satan, everything that the Antichrist would be up to. He turns it for his purposes. We see that when things look out of control, Jesus is in control. When things seem to be going wrong, we're most likely exactly where we're supposed to be. And that's certainly true for the church at Smyrna. Number three, when we face our greatest fears, we are closer to our greatest joy. When we face our greatest fears, we are closer than ever to our greatest joy. For our kids, we don't fear death because we have heaven with Jesus waiting for us. I mean, this church is on the verge of being killed. And Jesus finds such great hope to extend to them, right? Like the idea here is that in the midst of your greatest fear of death, you are now closer than ever to your greatest joy, right? Things are different than what they seem. It would seem to be that the people at Smyrna are poor and that they should be pitied, but it's the church at Laodicea that should be pitied, right? This church right here, this church right here is closer than any of these other churches probably to their greatest joy, He says, Be faithful unto death. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Yes, he's going to throw you into prison. It's going to be a short time in comparison to eternity. Your faith's going to be tested. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Number one, Jesus informs us that some will not be rescued in this life from persecution. Jesus informs us that some will not be rescued in this life from persecution. The church is cautioned to be ready for martyrdom. And they're told that in death they will actually become victorious. But Jesus never promises that the church is going to be spared. Their persecution is going to be short. It's going to be temporary. It's going to be restricted. But some will have to be faithful unto death. The promise is that he will give them the crown of life, not that he will spare them from death. Number two. Jesus promises us that all will be rewarded in the life to come. Jesus promises us that all will be rewarded in the life to come. Faithfulness will lead to that great reward. James chapter 1, verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. We remain steadfast like Polycarp under trial, and we receive the crown of life. But then there's this weird passage in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, that kind of shows that paradox of the fact that, okay, salvation is kind of held out there as this end goal, this end reward, and it could be easy to default into this mindset of thinking, okay, I'm not saved until the very end, right? Like, like, I don't have assurance of salvation until the very end. But then Revelation 3.11 says, I am coming soon, Jesus. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. It's the same crown. Here, Jesus says, you already possess it, right? Like, you already have it. Don't think for a second that your performance is ultimately what will determine if you get to possess this crown at the end of life. If you've been saved, if you've been sanctified, if you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, you possess this crown already. Hold tight to it. So you've got this, this already not yet type perspective here. Salvation's still out there. Like we still look forward to glorification, we still look forward to Jesus coming back and, and salvation really culminating with sin and death being removed forever. But then there's this idea that we already possess salvation. We already cling to it. We already hold to it. We already have that assurance. And the second death will have no power over us, according to Jesus here, which I want to draw our attention now to Revelation chapter 20 as we as we get ready to close. Revelation chapter 20 is where we uh, have the second death mentioned again. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, it says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Right? These are people that have been beheaded for the faith. They come to life in heaven, and there is no power over them regarding the second death. The second death is reserved for another group. In verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In chapter 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus says, fear the one who has power over the second death. And he tells the believers here at Smyrna, you do not have to fear. The implication for us is that be faithful unto death means that we must keep on becoming faithful, not just until we die, but even if it causes us to die. Let me break that down for you as you're writing it down. Be faithful unto death, all right? That phrase is used here. We are told as a church, as individual Christians, be faithful unto death. What that means is, is that we must keep on becoming faithful, Right, There has to be continual growth in our life if we're going to be faithful until the end. We can't just sit still. We can't just be okay with the status quo and say, okay, I'm saved and now I'll just wait. But there's this idea of continually growing and strengthening our faith, that our faith is going to be tested at various times through trials, and it's meant to prove our faith and to strengthen our faith. Be faithful unto death means that we must keep on becoming faithful. Not just until we die. So it's not just that we're to be faithful until death comes. We're to be faithful even if our faith causes us to die. Which it certainly did for Polycarp. Alright, so that leads us into our, our application and we'll wrap up with this. Um, how, do you, how do you take a passage like this? Because it's it's almost embarrassing, I think, to, to talk about a church and persecution in light of what we... What we endure on a regular basis, right? And so, how do you read a passage about persecution and, and death and imprisonment for your faith and walk away in our culture and, and think there's, there's anything to apply to our daily life? And I want to give you four things that I think we can pull from this passage in light of our current culture. Um, first of all, is that we should be praying for those suffering around the world. We should be praying for those that are suffering around the world while we as an individual church and while we as a church within America, with many other churches, may not endure the type of persecution that we're reading about here, that's certainly not true for the universal church. Romans chapter 12 verse 15 talks about us weeping with those who weep. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 3. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. I was reading one commentary who specifically was talking about the voice of the martyr ministries and some others that uh, are very good at making us aware of persecution around the world. So the stat that I'm gonna share with you comes from some of those sources. But just out of curiosity, how many Christians do you think are killed for their faith on a yearly basis? How many Christians do you think are killed for their faith on a yearly basis, any? Anyone want to take a guess? Twenty thousand? Millions? Eight hundred thousand? Three hundred thousand? <laughs> Neither are right, <laughs> so it doesn't matter what you said. <laughs> All right, I don't share a lot of stats because I never know like how accurate they are. I'm trusting that this is coming pretty accurately based on his knowledge of the voice of the martyrs and some of these guys that are really in tune with persecution around the world. Because if you're like me, randomly I'll see stuff on my Facebook feed about so-and-so was beheaded for their faith, pray for pastor so-and-so who's been imprisoned. And so my mind can't really wrap around the idea that more than a handful of people are being persecuted on a regular basis. Because what I see is very small. Um, and, and just my understanding of the world and the amount of people that live in this world is very small. Like when you, when you go to Uganda or you go to any other country, but for me, just being in Uganda, you see more people in Uganda than probably you, you see in a, in a year's time here. There are people everywhere. I mean, there are just people slap everywhere. You, you drive down the road, driving from here to Griffin, you would probably see. Several thousand people just walking the street of 16. I mean, there's people everywhere, okay? So, so I have a small concept of even the amount of people on this planet. But when I read this stat, that in a year's time, 100 to 150 million people are killed for their Christian faith. Like, I immediately think, are there even 100 million Christians on the planet? Like, like I, that, is, that isn't even like, I can't even wrap my mind around that number right like to think that we could lose that many people from the church on a yearly basis i, I don't have any, i don't have any comprehension of that so to even throw that number out there like it, it gives me chills cuz it's like i don't i don't even know if i can say that and really know what that even means that's an unbelievable amount of people that will die this year for their christian faith in fact the stat goes on to say that 65% of all christian martyrs have died since the beginning of the 20th century. So from the 20th century on, 65% of all Christian martyrs have occurred during that time. I'm telling you, you'd have a hard time telling people on the other side of the world that the tribulation isn't happening right now. You'd have a real hard time saying that the Antichrist isn't here. You'd have a real hard time saying it's gonna get worse. For us, we expect it to get worse because it's like, man, things are great. But for the majority of the church, for 150 million Christians this year, it won't get any worse. They won't live to see next year. We need to be conscious as much as we can be to be in prayer for those suffering around the world. Number two, prepare now so that when it arrives, you do not wilt. Prepare now so that when it arrives, you will not wilt. My hope is that our church continues to press forward and that we do garner the attention of Satan. Not because I desire persecution, not because I desire death, but I hope that our church becomes so effective that Satan and his forces have to take notice and they have to do everything they can to stop our church. And my hope is that we can be so grounded in our faith that we can be prepared if persecution ever arises. You don't want to be the kid who decides to play football in the month of August and has done zero to prepare for that first practice. I see it year in and year out. You got kids that come out and you say, okay, take two laps. We had a kid, we, we started workouts last Wednesday for football, it, it, this thing called the crucible. And it comes from the book of Proverbs that basically when, when the crucible is applied and it's like this, this grinding bowl that, that, that silver comes forth from that. Okay, so the, the thing is, is that we want to press our kids, push our kids, and we want to bring them forth as silver after this, this intense workout for the next several months. We had one kid that was throwing up after lap two. Like, hey, just, hey you guys take two warm-up laps. Just, just two warm-up laps. Kids puking after, after lap two. He has done zero to prepare for what's coming. I mean, he had to sit out the rest of the workout, just sat and watched, right? We don't want that to be the case for our spiritual faith, that we've just kind of been meandering around for years and decades, and then, boom, things change, and our government falls or our government shifts, and, and God allows someone to come to power who's not sympathetic towards Christianity, And all of a sudden the pressure comes and the persecution comes and immediately we're just wilting and crying Caesar is Lord because we've never experienced anything like it before. right? We need to prepare as much as we can prepare now so that if it shifts in our lifetime or shifts in our kids' lifetime, we're prepared for the type of persecution that we're talking about. Number three, identify any compromises you have made to avoid persecution now. Right? Like I you know, I had you guys talking this morning about why does American churches why do American churches not endure the type of persecution that's going on around the world? Right? I would imagine out of the 100 150 million Christians that are going to die for their faith, like it's minuscule if any that come out of the United States. Right? Like people aren't being killed for their faith by the government at least here in the United States. Maybe maybe individual scuffles result that someone kills somebody else because of their faith, but it's not an intense persecution coming from our government. Partly because I think God has allowed people to come to power that are sympathetic to the church, right? Like God's in control of all authorities and all powers. And so in some countries, he allows people to come to power that hate Jesus. We've been very fortunate for God to allow people to come to power who, who are sympathetic towards the church and sympathetic towards religious freedom. I think partly because Jesus allows the church to be wealthy from a earthly standpoint to enable us to send missionaries to these other countries, right? If we were poor, if we were without, it'd be very hard for us to send Chris and Melissa to Uganda right now. I think part of the process is Jesus has identified this country as a sounding board, as a sending forth place for missionaries to come forth. Now, I think we should be sending far more than we are, and we are we are probably squandering the resources that God has given us because we should be sending far more than we are. There are plenty of people that want to go to the mission field and don't have the funding to do so. But there's also things that I think we, we do, and as soon as we get any type of kickback, right, any type of um, ridicule, we back off, right? We say, well, I don't want to cause any problems. I don't want to ripple. I don't want to cause any ripples at work or ripples at school. I'm not going to share my faith too much because I don't want to offend anybody. I think we're also guilty of not being persecuted and not being hated by society because we, we, we wilt as soon as something happens. Any type of kickback, we step back and say, oh, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. We need to identify any compromises that we've made to avoid persecution now. And then number four, we need to endure general trials now, realizing it could be far worse. I've said before, I don't want to minimize what we talk about when we talk about the trials that we go through. But in light of what we're talking about with the church at Smyrna, in light of what people like Polycarp have endured, in light of what people will endure this year that name the name of Christ, we have far less to complain about, far less whining to do about much of what we will encounter this year. We need to endure these trials like champions. Right? We need to come forth victorious because what's being applied to us is far less than what's being applied to a lot of the church today. So, if anything, we should certainly be enduring these trials and and coming forth with our faith being proven for how little we actually experience. Family worship questions for this week. Number one, what are some of the worst things that happen to Christians who stand up for their faith in America? And really should say, how do these things compare to what Smyrna was facing, not how does these things, how do these things compare? compare to what Smyrna was facing? I want us to dialogue a little bit with our kids this week. Um, what's the worst that we could expect if we were really serious about our faith here? What's the worst prospect that we, we face? How does that compare with what Smyrna was facing? And then number two, this is, this, to me this is a great question for us to consider. If you knew persecution was going to intensify in the next 10 years here, what things would you want your children to know? What would you communicate to your kids? What would you want your kids to be grounded in to prepare for things that they've never experienced before? If you had a fair warning, right? They had 10 days that, you know, 10, you know, in 10 days or for 10 days, you're going to endure this. But let's just say we had a letter that came to us that said in 10 years, persecution is going to really start here. What would you do potentially in those 10 years to prepare? Prepare yourself, prepare your kids. All right, let's pray together. And Father, we come to you today and we thank you once again for your revealed word and the opportunities to get a glimpse of your plans and how you work. God, we're thankful that with this church at Smyrna, you were very intentional that you were going to allow them to suffer, but that you were going to restrict it for your purposes. God, we're thankful that you are so powerful that not only can you stop Satan, you can allow Satan to carry out what he thinks are his plans and allow them and, and cause them to result for your own glory. God, we're thankful that we serve a God who is so powerful that he can anticipate his opponents and can prepare and can counter. And completely catch the opponent off guard. God, we're thankful that Satan's best only results in us being strengthened so that we can be found victorious. God, we thank you that we don't have reason to fear. God, I know that's a lesson that we're probably still learning. I don't know that any of us could so boldly as Polycarp stand up and say, you don't have to secure me to that post. I will willingly hold myself there for my King and Savior. God, we want to be that type of person. We want to be individuals that have the fear of death completely removed from our mindset. God, help us to find hope and encouragement in that you are the first and the last, that you do hold the keys to life and death. And that ultimately, you are the one that we fear because you have control over the second death. And God, I pray that you would be with the church as a whole around the world, even today. God, we confess and we uh, repent of the fact that we, we aren't as aware as we probably could be of the sufferings that are taking place. God, we wanna be faithful to what Hebrews tells us to do and that's to, to consider them and to see them as a part of our body. But God, we confess that we're oftentimes very selfish with our own schedules and our own lives that rarely do we think beyond ourselves in our current situation. But Father, we do lift up to you today the church, your universal church, and God, we pray that you would allow those that are enduring persecution today, those that will be meeting in secret, that you would give them the faith to endure, that you would allow them to come forth as gold, that you would allow their death, their blood, to be the seed for the church to continue growing and expanding. Father, I pray that you would prepare us. Father, it has to only be a matter of time before persecution finds us here. God, I pray that in the, in the meantime that we would use the prosperity that you've blessed us with for your kingdom purposes. But God, that you would prepare us for persecution that may be coming. God, I pray that we would be faithful to live and to, to live out loud in such a way that we're not skirting anything to where we're reducing the persecution that should be coming our way. And God, help us to, to live faithfully and realize that when living faithfully, oftentimes it brings persecution. God, I pray that you prepare our kids as they too may see it in far different ways than we've ever seen it, that you would give us the resolve here in this church as parents, but also as just members of this church to help grow our kids up in their faith so that they too can be prepared. And Lord, we lift up to you Chris and Melissa right now as we close and as they get ready to go to bed tonight. Father, I pray that you would give Chris and Melissa both the rest they need. We pray specifically for Chris and his comfort. God, I pray that you would relieve any, any pain, any um, thoughts that would uh, provoke him to stay awake tonight, God, instead I pray that you would allow him to find rest and peace knowing that you stay awake, knowing that you tend to all the cares of this world. God, I pray that you would give them rest tonight. I pray that you would give them sleep. I pray that as they wake up tomorrow that they would have wisdom and insight in knowing how to use their day for your glory and for your honor. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.